Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. On April 16, 1996, a man named James Patterson Smith called local authorities in Manchester, England to report that he had accidentally killed his girlfriend during an argument. As he explained it, she was in the bathtub and the two got into a scuffle. Unfortunately, though, during this process, she inhaled a lot of water and when she lost consciousness and he tried to resuscitate her, he'd been unable to do so. Of course, the police quickly made their way to the scene and once they arrived, they were stunned by the gruesomeness of what had taken place. Pretty quickly, in fact, it became clear this had not been a case of someone accidentally drowning in the bathtub. No, instead, the evidence overwhelmingly pointed towards a prolonged torture session which had gone on for weeks. How had they come to such a belief? Well, aside from the multiple burns, fractures, and puncture wounds all over the victim's body, both of her eyes had been gouged out of their sockets. This is Monsters. The murder of Kellyanne Bates, a local Manchester girl who was only 17 years old at the time of her death, is an especially gruesome case as it shows some of the most depraved depths humanity can sink to. It's hard to believe something so horrific could even happen, but it did. And if we want to get a fuller picture of why, we have to travel back to post-war Britain as it was then that James Patterson Smith was born. He was 1948, a time where England, just like the rest of the world, was still recovering from the aftermath of World War II. This meant the economic circumstances of the country were not great, especially in the traditionally less prosperous North. That was the situation when our killer was brought into the world and given that he grew up in Manchester, it led to his youth being a humble one. There wasn't always a lot of money to go around for the Smith family back in those days, but that didn't seem to bother James too much. No, as the old adage goes, if you never had it, you don't know you're missing it. So, knowing no other way of life, the youngster seemed to have a pleasant upbringing by all accounts. Of course, there would be some difficulties though. After all, during his childhood, he was known for getting into the odd fight here and there. But that was considered fairly normal for the time and place, and because of that, he never really considered it to be any kind of burden. He may have not been the best when it came to his studies either, with him often getting pretty poor grades overall. Many of his peers were in similar situations, so as far as he was concerned, it was just the life that had been laid out for them. It wasn't until he left school that things started to get more trying for the now teenager. After realizing he had to begin looking for employment in late 1960s working-class Britain, James found there wasn't a lot to go around for someone as unqualified as he was. 
This led him to going through various lengthy spells of unemployment throughout his adult life. Spells which were only intermittently broke up by brief times where he had a job. Understanding fully what this meant for his quality of life, his anger would often rise to the forefront. That said, he rarely let his anger show itself in public, and despite the increasingly difficult circumstances, he was able to maintain a sense of dignity to most who knew him. Hell, it was often said by those who were close to James that he was a very well-groomed and house-proud man, someone who always appeared clean and tidy and who always made sure everything around him was as well. Unlike so many of his peers, he didn't drink or smoke, and the reason for this was because he felt like they'd only worsen his situation as they'd eat up his money and damage his health in the long run. Needless to say then, such a presentation made him stand out amongst the opposite sex, and it ultimately led to his first wife taking note of him around this time. After a brief courtship between the two, James would propose and the two would start out the 1970s by getting married. Unfortunately though, as time went on, this relationship soured, with the primary reason being that James was often physically abusive. While he may have appeared to the outside world to be a man in complete control of himself, there was still a lot of unresolved anger buried deep within him. This was something he would often take out on his partner. Come 1980, she finally decided she'd had enough and, after 10 years together, the two formally split. With him not being accustomed to being alone anymore, James found the subsequent solitude hard and soon became interested in finding someone else. That was what led him to begin dating Tina Watson, a 20-year-old woman from the local area who he spent the next two years in a relationship with. Of course, as a result of the 12-year age gap between them, James was able to assert a certain degree of dominance over Tina. In fact, so heavy was this influence that, just like with his prior relationship, he would frequently use her as a punching bag whenever he got angry. Pretty soon after that, things got to a point where she was being beaten on a daily basis. As Tina Watson later described it herself, quote, At first it was now and again, just a little tap, but in the end it was every day. He would smack me in the face or hit me over the head with an ashtray. He would kick me in the legs or between the legs. These beatings didn't slow down when she fell pregnant with James's child either. If anything, it only seemed to get worse. At one point, he even attempted to drown her while she was bathing, a fact which, when you realize what he later did to Kellyanne Bates, suggests a long-term pattern of potentially murderous behavior. In many ways, it's a blessing that Tina wasn't his first victim, and perhaps realizing the growing severity of the situation, she told James she was leaving soon after the drowning incident took place sometime in 1982. Not that this did much to make James assess his behavior towards women, however, because as soon as Tina was gone, taking his unborn child with her, he moved on to his next relationship with 15-year-old Wendy Mottershead. And yes, the fact that she was only 15 at the time their relationship began adds another crime to the list as in the UK, the age of consent is 16. This means that if the two had sex during that first year, something we can only presume they had, then the man who would later be convicted of murder was committing statutory rape. But why were his partners getting increasingly younger as time went on? Well, the answer to that may lie in the psychology of abusers. 
As research has shown, men who like to control their partners through physical and emotional means tend to veer towards younger women as they're generally less experienced in relationships. This makes them less likely to understand the abnormality of what's going on. They don't have the experience to identify the red flags. Their inexperience with love, combined with the general lack of sexual education in schools, can often lead them to confuse love and sex with control, something that only makes it easier for others to assert that control over them. That's not all, though, because research also suggests that, once things start getting a little too heavy, young women are the demographic most likely to attempt to flee a violent relationship. And while at first glance this may appear to show that they're less likely to be abused in the long term, it actually tends to make things worse for them as it means their abusers will resort to increasingly violent methods so as to keep them from leaving. With this increased danger comes the increased likelihood that the violence will eventually turn fatal. As Melpa Kemateros, co-founder and executive director of Shield of Athena in Montreal puts it, quote, that time when they're attempting to leave is also the most dangerous for them. It explains the higher mortality rates. Looking at it with this information in mind then, it's easy to see why James veered younger with his newest partner as he perhaps felt she'd be easier to keep a leash on and that she wouldn't leave him like his past two partners had. With him quickly growing confident in that as their relationship progressed, it didn't take long before he began abusing Wendy on a regular basis as well. But while the physical and verbal assault she was subjected to are all unforgivable, perhaps the most unforgivable incident of all occurred when, fairly early into their time dating, James held the young woman's head under water in a kitchen sink in an attempt to drown her. Of course, the reason this is noteworthy should be obvious. It's the second time we know of that he tried to drown a partner. While this incident would be a major contributing factor towards Wendy also leaving him soon thereafter, it appears she didn't report it to the authorities at the time. It may have been due to her young age that she feared reprisals from the law. Yet another reason why abusive men tend to go after younger women is that they're statistically far less likely to report incidences of assault to the police. So with him getting out of the situation unscathed all over again, James was free to begin searching for his next girlfriend. And that's where we come to the ultimate victim of this story, Kellyanne Bates. He wouldn't be considered normal by many for a grown man to enter into a relationship with a 14-year-old girl. Prior to meeting with James, however, Kelly had always been a girl who appeared far more mature than her age suggested. In fact, growing up in Hattersley, a small town just 10 miles or 16 kilometers away from Manchester City Center, she frequently surprised people with how mature and outgoing she was. Of course, this was only added to by her ambitious nature something she showed in her desire to grow up and become a teacher. As her teenage years came around, her maturity created a desire within the young woman to hang around with older crowds, something her parents were well aware of and even went as far as to support. What they didn't realize, though, was that one of the people their daughter came into contact with would be the man who eventually killed her. While she was still 14 and studying at school, Kelly had taken to babysitting for a number of families in the area. It was while doing this that she met a man who appeared very charming on the surface and who claimed his name was Dave Smith. He also told her he was 32 years old, though as she would later find out, neither of these details were true. 
Kelly would eventually learn that his name was James, and at that point in time, he was actually 44 years old, clearly far too old for a girl who was still young enough to be in school. Not that she seemed to mind, though, because, as time went on, the two became so close she'd often sneak out of her bedroom at night to go meet him. Whenever she was babysitting, he'd regularly meet her once she was done so that he could walk her home and keep her safe. Not that he'd go inside to meet her parents quite yet, though. He probably realized what their reaction would be when she explained the situation, so he decided to keep his distance for the time being. Even if her parents wouldn't have approved, Kelly had by now fallen in love. But given this was her first real boyfriend, it's understandable she'd become so infatuated. And of course, while her parents didn't know the full details of what was going on at the time, they could figure out enough through context to realize that there was a boy in her life. Understanding this, they gave her some leeway when it came to breaking the rules. As time went on, though, this rule-breaking got worse and worse to the point that, on some occasions, Kelly would disappear from home for days on end. Perhaps realizing this could create a problem for him, James tried to calm the situation by calling the family home and introducing himself as Dave, with him claiming to Kelly's mother that he was concerned that her daughter's rebellious acts were getting out of control. Feeling like she now had an ally, Margaret took an initial liking to Dave. After all, at least over the phone, he appeared to be a decent guy who cared about her daughter's well-being. Sure, he may have had a deeper voice than most teenagers, but Kelly was always one to hang around with older crowds, so she assumed he was maybe 16 or 17 at most. How surprised she'd be then when, after Kelly finally came clean about the relationship, Margaret was told that her daughter's boyfriend was actually 32 years old. Still, even if her mother didn't like it, by this point the girl was 16 and free to make her own decisions. That said, if the Bates family were going to be comfortable with an older man dating their teenage daughter, they at least wanted to meet him first. Once they did, though, the atmosphere changed dramatically as when Kelly brought quote-unquote Dave Smith back home one afternoon and the family could see just how much older he was, they immediately became even more uncomfortable than they had been before. Kelly's mother, Margaret, would go as far as to describe the situation as one that caused the hairs on the back of her neck to stand up. In a later interview, she even described feeling the desire to stab James with a bread knife from the kitchen when she first met him. For as violent of an initial reaction as that was, it's not hard to see how she arrived at it. After all, here was a man who was old enough to be her daughter's father explaining that he'd been dating her for the past two years. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In reality, Dave, as they knew him, was actually a full year older than Kelly's father, Tommy. Because of that, it made it a particularly strange and tense situation for them all to be in. James did everything he could to assuage any concerns the pair had by showing what seemed to be a sincere love for Kelly. 
Despite that, both parents remained utterly convinced that the relationship was not a good thing, which seems obvious. So concerned would Margaret get about their being together over the weeks and months which followed, she began asking around the area for any information she could get about this so-called Dave Smith. No matter who she asked and no matter where she ventured, though, nobody seemed to know anything about him. At least not at first. Eventually, her amateur sleuthing came up with some answers when she was able to figure out that Dave Smith wasn't the age he claimed to be. Once he was confronted with the truth, however, he brushed the whole thing off by telling Margaret that he didn't come clean about his real age because, if he had, she wouldn't have wanted him to date her daughter. Clearly. Now that she could see how much they cared for each other, though, it was fine that she knew as far as he was concerned because age was just a number in this situation and the important thing was their love. Of course, neither Margaret nor Tommy were won over by that explanation, but the revelation didn't do anything to change Kelly's opinion of her lover. As time went on and things got more serious, she began spending more and more time at James's home on Furtively Road, Gorton, in Manchester. This led to further tension developing between the family, and like any good abuser, James used this to drive a further wedge by constantly criticizing the way his teenage partner's parents were reacting to the situation behind their back. Yes, James was very experienced at isolating his victims from anyone who might be able to help them in the long run. So, with him being free to work his magic, come the autumn of 1995, Kelly and her family were rarely in contact at all. She was still technically living with her parents, but she'd rarely go there in person anymore. Whenever she did speak to them, it would usually take the form of a brief phone call, which more often than not ended in an argument about her ongoing relationship. With them already having existing concerns about the dynamic of the pairing, as time went on and contact with Kelly became less and less frequent, Margaret and Tommy grew increasingly worried that there was something abusive happening at Furtively Road they didn't know about. Whenever they brought up the subject of abuse with their daughter, she would deflect their claims. And whenever they thought about going over to James's house to see what was going on firsthand, they would ultimately decide not to, as they were worried such an act would only push Kelly even further away. Of course, when they later found out what was taking place behind closed doors, they would regret never having done anything. Given how the story would end, this is a regret they're sadly going to have to carry with them for the rest of their lives. It should come as no surprise to anyone that, considering how his past relationships had gone, James quickly fell into a pattern of abusing Kelly both physically and emotionally. On the rare occasions she wasn't with him, James constantly kept in contact with his teenage lover by phone so as to find out where she was and what she was doing. While to her young mind this may have seemed like he was showing how much he cared, in reality it was just another way of him subconsciously letting her know he was always watching. As if that wasn't enough, whenever he was with her, he'd assert his dominance, making all of her decisions for her. Over time, Kelly began to lose any confidence in herself and the bright spark that friends had once known her for was all but snuffed out. Not that any of these friends saw much of her now, as, come November of 1995, James was pretty much the only person Kelly was allowed to have any contact with on a regular basis. 
Even those periods of returning home to stay with her parents had all but ended, as following a particularly bad argument with her parents, she'd formally moved in with James. Things only got worse, as even weekdays offered her no reprieve from her boyfriend anymore. That was because, with her becoming an increasingly absent fixture from her college classes and with James not being employed, they had little else to fill their time with except each other. Just as he had done during his marriage in the 1970s, James was struggling to find work again. This time, though, it stung even more because, with the UK on the verge of undergoing an economic boom, it meant he now felt even more left behind by society. This only ended up adding to the abuse poor young Kelly would undergo because, with there being no one else to take his frustrations out on, she often bore the brunt of her partner's fury. At one point, things got so bad that Kelly even risked a rare visit back home to see her parents in person. When they laid eyes on her that day, they were shocked by what had become of their once happy daughter. When she showed up, gone was the fun-loving girl of days past. Now she just stood there, constantly slouched over as if in a state of depression, with her clothes looking like they hadn't been washed in weeks and her hair being dirty, greasy, and unkempt. On top of that, a large black bruise was plastered across one side of her face. While Kelly tried her best to explain this away as being something which had happened when she was attacked by a group of girls, her parents were hesitant to believe that. At one point, her mother begged her once more to leave her boyfriend and come back home. And if she wasn't going to do that, then she at least needed to keep in more regular contact with them so as to let them know she was okay. While Kelly would continue to see them, it wouldn't be anywhere near enough for their liking. And whenever she did return after that, new injuries were often found on her body. On one occasion, there were what appeared to be bite marks on her arm, and at another time, Kelly's mother noticed fingertip bruising around her neck. At a certain point, things got so bad that the young woman was even able to build up the nerve to leave James and return back home. Soon after she did, however, he began stalking her while she was going about her daily life, pestering her until she eventually forgave him and agreed to resume their relationship. Not knowing what else to do, Margaret and Tommy secretly followed their daughter back to James's home one evening and, once there, they confronted him about what was going on. He was able to spin them a yarn and put on a convincing enough show that, by the end, they were left with no evidence he was actually responsible for any of Kelly's injuries. One thing he did let slip while they were there, though, was something which chilled the couple to the bone when they later thought back to it after Kelly's murder. As he was showing them around his home, perhaps as a way to try to calm their fears, he pointed out a hole in the floorboards and instructed them to watch their step. As he explained it at the time, this hole had been left by an engineer who'd come around prior to that to fix a gas leak. Thinking back to this in hindsight, however, both Margaret and Tommy came to believe it was actually a holding area where Kelly would be later tied up and placed inside so that she couldn't escape. With no evidence of any wrongdoing at the time, they felt at a loss over what to do next. So with no other options left, Margaret decided to call the authorities in search of some advice. What they told her was that, while they couldn't do anything unless Kelly herself went to the police, Margaret could make a doctor's appointment under her daughter's name, then go to it herself and try to explain what was happening. 
After that, if Kelly ever went to the doctor herself, they'd know what the situation was and they'd be able to assess it accordingly. At that point, in fact, they may even be able to offer some confidential advice to help her get out of the situation she was likely in. For as solid of an idea as that was, however, it's unclear if Margaret ever followed up on it. What we can say for sure, though, is that, even if she did, Kelly never went to the doctor with any problems of her own following that. She would actually never see her doctor again. In fact, she would rarely see anyone who knew her at all in the days and months ahead. That's because, by now, James had such an iron grip over her that he was able to convince her to stop seeing her parents in person after he got wind of the fact that they were trying to break the pair up. But it wasn't just her parents who lost contact with her, because James also convinced Kelly to largely stop attending college and see her friends too. Even her neighbors rarely spoke to her by now. When one concerned neighbor who noted she hadn't been around for a while asked James about her well-being one day, he allowed them to see Kelly, but only through the window of a room she was sitting in upstairs at the time. While this did seem to quell the neighbor's concerns, it did seem a little strange to them that she never came outside anymore. According to her boyfriend, she had a new job which often necessitated she worked long hours and so whenever she did get home, she was more likely to be sleeping than anything else. Was there any truth to that? Well, yes. With James not being employed and surviving only on welfare, it meant that Kelly was expected to bring in a more stable income for the household. While she was free to go to work, she was still kept under an iron thumb and expected to return home as soon as her shift was over. Of course, had she known what was coming, perhaps she would have been more motivated to try and flee. As far as she was concerned, though, she'd been so brainwashed that no matter how much her lover battered her and bruised her, he would never do anything to really hurt her and was only showing her how much he cared with each new strike. While she may have given up on herself at that point, her parents hadn't, because after several weeks of having heard nothing from their daughter, either in person or by phone, they decided the best thing to do was to go around to James's house in hopes they could at least see her. Sure, it might anger her even more and cause an even bigger divide between them in the long run, but at least they'd know she was safe and that was the most important thing of all. Before they did that, though, their oldest son returned home one afternoon and told them that his friend had seen Kelly and she was doing fine. With this easing their concerns somewhat at least, Margaret and Tommy decided not to intrude on her and instead leave her to make her own decisions, just as she had asked them to do. Still, Margaret couldn't help herself from calling Kelly over the phone on March 10th after she'd received a call from the dentist to say her daughter had missed an appointment. At that point, seemingly in better spirits, Kelly apologized for both missing the appointment and for not being in contact with her family for so long. So different did she appear, in fact, she seemed ready to re-engage, telling her mother that she would go over and see her for Mother's Day the following Sunday. But when that day came, she never showed up. No, the only thing that arrived was a card which was not written in Kelly's handwriting, something that once again caused the family to worry. Afterwards, they began thinking of ways they could intervene again without upsetting their daughter too much. But before they could carry out any such plans, unfortunately, the worst would happen. On April 16, 1996, James went to the local police station to tell them that Kelly had drowned in the bathtub during an argument. 
But while he would admit to being the one responsible for her death, he initially claimed it had been accidental. So with only that information to go on, the police went to his house to investigate the scene in more detail. Once they got there, though, any suggestion that this death had been accidental started to feel far less likely. Kelly's blood was all throughout the house, and if that wasn't horrific enough, both of her eyes had been gouged out. But that wasn't all, because an autopsy revealed over 150 separate injuries all over her body, amongst which were burns, broken bones, stab wounds, mutilation of ears, mouth, and genitals, and perhaps most shockingly of all, a partial scalping of her head. It seemed pretty obvious that this was not a case of someone accidentally drowning in the bath while in the middle of an argument with her boyfriend. No, these injuries instead pointed towards a prolonged period of suffering before the girl's life was eventually snuffed out. Of course, this was an attitude shared by the Bates family too as, when the police went to their door to inform them about what had happened, her mother's immediate reaction was to say, quote, He killed her. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. James was immediately placed under arrest and charged with first-degree murder. While he would continue to deny what had happened, the forensic report was gradually able to paint a better picture of the circumstances that occurred during the weeks leading up to Kelly's death. As they discovered over the course of their investigation, while the abuse had likely been going on for some time, it started getting noticeably worse during the month or so leading up to her final days. During that time, Things had progressed from more basic assaults, such as James bruising her with punches and kicks, to him carrying out more sadistic acts like burning her with cigarettes and pouring boiling water over both her feet and buttocks. As this was a level of abuse he'd never gone to with any of his prior partners, it left the question as to how things had gotten so out of control. While the answer to that remains unclear, the likely explanation is that he was concerned Kelly was going to leave him and so he felt a more intense level of abuse was what was needed to keep her in check. The burning of her feet specifically seems to suggest he wanted to make it hard for her to walk anywhere. The scalding of her buttocks feels like a way for him to try to remind her of who was boss every time she attempted to sit down. Of course, those weren't the only injuries she'd suffered during that time though. At one point, she'd even been branded across the thigh with an iron. Then, as if that wasn't pain enough, James had apparently continued to punish the young woman by stabbing her repeatedly with household items such as knives, forks, and even scissors. And it wasn't only on the outside of her body where stab wounds were found either. No, punctures were also located in Kelly's mouth, suggesting this had been a targeted spot as well. So it goes without saying, the suffering she underwent must have been unimaginable. But that wasn't even the worst of it, because at some point during this four-week period, perhaps in another attempt to stop her from leaving, Kelly's hands and kneecaps had both been crushed. 
Surely then, once things had gone this far, James must have realized he'd crossed a line he couldn't come back from. If his teenage girlfriend ever got out of the house again, he'd definitely be arrested for his actions. That may very well be what made him decide to take things that final step and kill her, with his hopes no doubt being that he could somehow convince the police that it was an accident. Before he dealt the final blow, however, weeks of further punishment would be carried out on the helpless young woman. Not satisfied with how brutal things had been so far, James tied Kelly to a radiator by the hair and began the process of scalping her. While he didn't complete this scalping, it was far enough when her body was found that it would no doubt have been unbearable to endure. As with the partial strangulation Kelly suffered, something which was determined by the ligature marks around her neck. But even that wasn't enough as, following that, Kelly's arm was fractured and her ears, nose, eyebrows, lips, and genitals were all mutilated beyond recognition. And of course, in perhaps the most gruesome moment of all, and the one which is hardest to stomach for any reasonably minded person, both of her eyes were gouged out of their sockets. What's more horrifying about this last part, though, is that the evidence suggests this may not have happened right before her death. Further stab wounds into her empty eye sockets told investigators that it was far more likely that they were removed early on during the month-long torture session. According to the medical examiner, her eye injuries would have occurred no less than five days before her death, and there's even a possibility they happened as far as three weeks prior. In the final insult after all this suffering, all this torture and abuse, it appeared that Kelly was forced to undergo such physical pain while also being starved. An examination of Kelly's stomach revealed that, in the days leading up to her death, she had not been given any food or water at all. At the time of her death, she weighed around 44 pounds less than she had the last time her parents saw her. On or around April 16th, after beating Kelly on the skull with a shower head, James forced her head underwater in his bathtub and proceeded to hold it there until she drowned. I have to ask though, given the severity of the injuries on her body, how could he have ever believed the police would buy his story of it being an accidental drowning? That was certainly the question her father Tommy had when he was given the grim task of identifying his daughter's mangled corpse. As he described it, her injuries were so gruesome that there's no way it could possibly have been accidental. What had occurred in that house over that month-long period had been completely calculated and nothing less than the actions of an animal. For Margaret, however, calling James Patterson Smith an animal wasn't going far enough. She would go on to say, quote, People call him an animal, but an animal wouldn't do that to another animal. He is a very evil man. I think about how much pain she must have been in, how she must have thought we didn't love her because we didn't save her. Of course, we can only hope that wasn't the case and that, even then, she realized her parents loved her and would do anything they could to get her out of the situation had they known exactly what was going on. Given the pain she was in, though, it's hard to put ourselves in her mind and figure out what she must have been thinking at the time. Still, her parents deserve no blame and all of the fault should lie with James Patterson Smith. That's certainly the way the medical examiner felt when he described the death as the worst he'd ever seen in over 600 cases of homicide throughout his career. Once news got out to the public of what had taken place, 
People all over the UK were sickened to their core, and the whole incident would quickly go down in history as being one of the most violent and gruesome murders ever committed on British soil. What made it all more difficult to stomach was that it couldn't be explained as a random burst of emotion, as this had taken place over a period of weeks, meaning James had to have deliberately considered each and every action. So obviously it should go without saying the widespread belief was that he would have the book thrown at him during his trial. It seems he realized that as, while he did maintain his innocence in killing Kelly purposefully, he admitted to manslaughter. He also claimed responsibility for all of the various injuries she had on her body. With no real way to explain his actions, all he was left with was to argue she'd often put him through hell by winding him up and irritating him to the point that he felt he needed to take his frustrations out on her. As he described it at least, she had at one point taunted James over the fact that his mother had died. On top of that, he also alleged she had often dared him to hurt her once things got heated and that after the damage was done, she'd hurt herself more as to make the injuries look worse. Whether this is true or not is something we'll likely never know the answer to, as the only two people who could confirm the validity of such statements are Kelly and James. With Kelly dead and James being less than a reliable source, this part of the story will have to remain unconfirmed. Either way though, whether she was irritating him or not, and whether she was even going as far as to goad him into hitting her, it doesn't excuse domestic violence, and it certainly doesn't excuse the sheer depths of torture and disfigurement which went on from there. I mean, you gouged someone's eyes out because they irritated you? That doesn't make you seem any better. No, the only explanation for such actions was that James was a man in a state of deep mental illness. A consultant psychiatrist brought in by the courts to help in the case stated the killer had a severe paranoid disorder with extreme elements of morbid jealousy. He was also delusional, living in what was described as a distorted reality. And this would explain why such a pattern of behavior would continue on for so many years with so many different partners. These revelations weren't enough to cause the courts to offer any leniency though, as, despite this paranoid and delusional state, James was quickly deemed sane enough to understand what he was doing, and so sane enough to be put to trial. That trial began in November of 1996, and would not see a whole host of damning evidence from the murder itself be brought to the jury's attention. However, it would see a number of James's ex-partners present as witnesses, giving their experiences of what life had been like living with the accused. Wendy Mottershead, in particular, would describe her time with James in harrowing terms when she recalled him holding her head underwater in a kitchen sink, telling the court, quote, It frightened me, but you get to the point where you're too frightened to do or say anything. You just took it. Tina Martin explained how she'd regularly been used as a human punching bag by her ex-partner, even when she was pregnant with his child. On top of that, the court would learn that he'd almost drowned her as well. As she put it, quote, Once I was having a bath and he got me by the throat and tried to push me under the water. Of course, this presented a very clear pattern of behavior, making it obvious to the court that what happened to Kellyanne Bates had only been a matter of time. This, combined with the injuries which could not have reasonably come from anyone other than James, meant it didn't take them long to find him guilty of first-degree murder. 
From there, it was left to the judge presiding over the trial to lay down a sentence. And after a short deliberation, he decided that nothing short of life in prison would be suitable. As he stated at the sentencing, quote, This has been a terrible case, a catalog of depravity by one human being upon another. You are a highly dangerous person. You are an abuser of women, and I intend, so far as it is in my power, that you will abuse no more. With James being placed behind bars for the next 25 years minimum, it meant he wouldn't be eligible for parole until then. Even after that length of time had passed, the sheer brutality of what he'd carried out made it unlikely he'd be released ever again. But even if the killer had now been brought to justice, the pain and trauma didn't end there. What had happened to Kelly would live on not only in her loved ones for the rest of their days, but also in the jury who'd been forced to relive the whole thing through photos and graphic descriptions. That was why, after the trial was over, every member of that jury was offered professional counseling to help them deal with what they had seen and heard. And if there was ever an example needed as to how brutal a crime this was, you only have to look to the fact that each and every one of those 12 jurors accepted that counseling. As for Margaret and Tommy Bates, though, no amount of counseling was going to allow them to get over the murder of their daughter. But then how could it? It was simply too much, especially given the circumstances of how she died. The only thing they could do to try to come to terms with it was to think back to how different things might have gone had they reacted differently during that original meeting with James. As Margaret put it, had she had her chance again, she'd have killed him right there where he stood, using that bread knife she'd considered using at the time. But the past couldn't be changed and they'd have to try their best to move on with their lives, at least now safe in the knowledge that James could do no more harm to anyone from where he was. And that's where he would remain, all the way past Margaret's death. In 2020, 24 years after her own daughter was taken from the world far too soon, she died in the hospital just before Christmas at the age of 65. In her case, though, it was nothing quite as horrendous as torture and murder. No, while respiratory failure isn't a particularly pleasant way for anyone to go, at least it came on her own terms somewhat as, prior to that, she'd been able to beat breast cancer on two separate occasions. As the tributes poured in from her friends and family, it only served to remind people that, just one year later, the man who killed her daughter would be up for parole. Thankfully, she never had to live through the stress of that. Not that she'd have been forced to see James Patterson Smith be let back out onto the streets anyway, though, because, in November of 2022, after meeting with the parole board to discuss his release, he'd be unanimously rejected on the grounds that he still represented a risk to the public. With him being 74 years old at the time of that hearing, it seems unlikely he'll ever see the light of day again. But given what he had done not only to Kellyanne Bates, but so many other partners prior to that, it's really no less than what a monster deserves. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help.
if you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.